We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We don't often think about it, but where do you think you'll live after you turn 70? After working for around 40 to 50 years, the average Australian will reach retirement. Around this time, our physical needs will have changed. There might be fewer people living in our home, and we might also need some type of medical assistance. These are some heavy things to think about, but it's the reality for everyone when they become a senior. For people at this stage of life, the design of buildings is an important factor in their lifestyle. Aged care design considers people's connection to their community, allows for physical limitations, and also helps express people's individual characters when their memories need a helping hand. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Y.A. Ng, James Thompson, and Anna Nolasco about senior living design and how aged care impacts the buildings many of us will live in after our retirement. I'm not sure about you, but when I think about aged care living, I think about something that's pretty grim. And in Australian architecture, there are people specialising in aged care design who are taking things to a new level. Y.E. is a senior associate at Conrad Gargett, where she has been working for the last 15 years with a focus on health and aged care projects. One of the most recent projects she worked on was Southport, which is a 24-storey high-rise integrated aged care facility, including residential aged care, independent living facility and assisted support living. YA also has a PhD which focused on connecting Indigenous childcare and Indigenous residential aged care, which could support intergenerational learning and sharing of Indigenous culture and knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. So tell us about this integrated model because that is different to what most people would think about when they think of aged care and aged care facilities. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, most aged care site, you either have the residential aged care, which is more like the nursing care facility, or you have the retirement living home or villas, which is on a separate site. This one is a fully integrated model, meant that you come in here to retire in the at age of 55 by an apartment unit and then you get to use most of the uh, recreational facility and then because it's integrated the move that you make from home transition into this facility is only once so it's almost like long-term livable that without having to relocate again and relocate again due to your health conditions as an integrated care if your care needs change the service provider is able to adjust to your needs in a tower concept so as your needs gets higher the care gets delivered to your apartment if you need to, but as you deteriorate or if your partner deteriorates, uh, one of them might move into a higher care area, into the aged care, but that meant that you don't have to be displaced in that sense. So in an integrated tower concept, you get to stay in this village as part of this community for as long as you lived. So there's advantage of having an integrated tower model, yeah. Okay. And how is this work a little bit different to what you might call standard aged care? How is it different to what you would get in a regular aged care facility? A regular aged care facility either provide one typology. So you're either doing retirement living and then you kind of have this facility and the support is slightly different. So in a co-located site, like in a tower, you already have the key support facilities like home care services that is delivering your care and nursing needs to your home already integrated in there. So you don't have to call for external service provider to come in and then look after your care for you in that sense. So because it has the aged care component, it has an integrated laundry kitchen, meant that you can get those services delivered to other type of use, which is like your retirement living as well as your assisted supported, depending on your care need. Whereas in a single typology side, you kind of have to call in other services to support it or you will kind of have to, as your condition deteriorates, you might need to transition outside your comfort zone or area of your friends that you're familiar with away from them to move into a new environment. Ah, uh, right. Okay. 
So you also mentioned that this building, the Southport project, is in a 25-storey tower. Are there any difficulties that come with building so high? I mean, it must be a tricky thing, like, say, for emergencies. Would that cause some issues? No, I think like any tower or like the hospitals that we've been building, which are multi-storey high and stuff, you get really good accessibility to the leaves, so we still design to the NCC code requirement and the required fire compartment and sizes. On the top floor is obviously the best view of Southport and Gold Coast area. So we left that as more of a function recreation spaces. And then the typical floors are the independent living units. So they are like the apartment types, two bedrooms, three bedrooms kind of arrangement. And obviously with accessibility and livable housing guide applied into those units, which makes it really user-friendly for all ages. And then a different need falls in if one of your partner moves into the aged care, which is on level four and five, you can choose not to move out of your apartment, but choose to downsize still within the tower into a single studio assisted supported living. So you can still cook your meals if you like, but if you need to, the service can be delivered to you like laundry can be done in the whole building itself. So there's some great advantage in having stacked up all the types here. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, the views must be amazing and it must be um, really great to be able to take up a small amount of area uh, on the site because you can go much higher rather than having to spread out. And is this something that's happening in other countries or is this something that seems to be happening a lot more in Australia? It's very common in Hong Kong, in Singapore, to have a integrated concept with units. Some towers in Asia has purely one tower for retirement living and one tower for residential. And then it's got the integrated facility. And in Asia, they've been quite smart. They integrate care center for elderly or what we call here respite care, which is like childcare for the elderly. And it's great. It's meant that you don't get to be displaced from your community, but you come in to, for a day activities, be part of a peer. So it kind of reduces social isolation. So that, that's really great. So a lot of model in Asia has all of this in the tower, plus the uh, daycare center for elderly. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And I mean, but you were saying before as well that there are two or three bedroom apartments even. Does that mean that there are a lot of people who maybe have their children uh, move in with them when they're living there so that they can also feel like they're part of a mixed demographic community rather than just an older demographic? In Asia, yes. But in, in Australia, it hasn't quite reached that phase yet. The ones that we're doing in the tower concept is purely for the uh, age 55 and above residents. So uh, for the retirement committee, their children can visit for sure, as well as the grandkids comes during the school holiday, stays over and uh, be part of the community using the pool facility, the barbecue and all the recreation facilities. So it's still quite open to the families and community, but it's not for like a long term placement or a purchase of a unit for the family. It's quite different. Yeah. Okay. So. If we move now to the Indigenous aged care that you participated in, how different was that facility compared to something like Southport? Very much different because it's a pure aged care facility. And the idea is to what makes it a unique aged care facility for the First Nation people. So the reason I went back to research was because I first worked on Jimbulanga Nursing Centre in 2015. And there was a gap in um, evidence-based design and available information about cross-culture design for First Nation people in the care environment. And so I was facing a lot of doubts in some of this evidence theory, whether it's applicable for a different cultural group. Right, okay. So what sort of research did you have to do to clarify the doubts that you had in, in the evidence-based design? <laughs> <laughs> My research is a case study mixed matter approach. So there's four aged care facilities in Southeast Queensland that's listed that provides a cultural environment suitable for First Nation people. So I was able and very, very fortunate to get the support from all of this four facility to go in and study and draw and map out the environment itself. 
So I was able to observe all four facilities over one and a half year course of period. So two of them, which I work on as in practice as well, and the other two just visiting and then interviewing residents, interviewing staff, interviewing families about the space, the use, what's missing in the design, how can we improve the environment? Yeah. Yeah. And what did you find culturally was different for Indigenous Australians when they're getting older? What do they need that was different to your experience? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the elderly like to maintain the traditions and the connections to their community. And uh, through Indigenous housing and research in Indigenous health in hospital, we understand this importance of kinship and family connections, which is quite different from a typical aged care facility, which is more designed for Australians in that sense, not for a specific culture group. And there are also a strong preference for outdoor settings. And this outdoor setting has a lot of connection with end of life phase, as well as how family do with end-of-life care, especially when you have Indigenous family with big mobs coming in just to be with the resident near the end-of-life phase. And the use of space really has an implication on design itself. Mm, absolutely. Well, you mentioned that there could be up to 40 family members needing to come in and, and visit. Does that mean that everyone just gets a giant room? <laughs> how does, no, how does no, that no. work? As a result of the research, right, we understand that this kinship dynamic for First Nation people is such that you have a large number of visitors visiting. And for this facility, they understand that because there is run either by Indigenous organisations or as an organisation that understands the First Nation people's culture needs. However, there's a limitation in the care design and in the design facility itself. So if we talk about near end of life care, when you have large 40 people visiting, you kind of need to design an additional room that is quite flexible for family care. So during that period, family can come in maybe through a, a, another door uh, entry access without interrupting on the daily routine of the aged care facility or without interrupting other residents at the same time. But the residents are very understanding because they are of the same culture group. So in that sense, an additional room where you actually have a lot of family to grieve is quite important. And you have that in hospital, like a care room at the end of a ward. It's the same that in aged care, perhaps there could be consideration for a end-of-life care room or a family room get could double up as a lounge space when not in use. But when the need arises, there's a place for family to go to besides the resident rooms. As you understand, there's only so much flexibility you can design into a bedroom space. And it's only so big a room that one can allow for in the planning and the design. Then um, you need another space to support that together with a great outdoor connection. So some people would like to walk out. So the connection outdoor from the bedroom and from those family care room is quite important because they kind of seek comfort or reprieve during the end of life phase to have a moment by yourself where you actually need to compose. So there's not many spaces that consider that in the design. Right. You mentioned before that there was also a, a real requirement for Indigenous Australians to be connected to the landscape around their space. How does that work with the actual design as well? Mm. The, the client was very smart to make a decision that it wants to have this connection to ground. So every single one of these bedrooms have outdoor connections either to a internal courtyard or to an outdoor garden. So we also did a split in the roof design. So as you palliate or as you deteriorate and you're more big bound, you still have this great view to the landscape and view of the sky, which is the connection of movement and nature. So that was a design decision made together with the client. And it was in the client brief as well which is quite unusual because you look at other typical aged care facility, this ground connection 
may not be as strong as for an indigenous context versus a typical. People still like the outdoor connection because the biophilia concept of nature, about wellness to health and everything is still there for everyone, not just the indigenous people. Mm. Well, it just seems like the work that you're doing in that area is so fundamental. And because you're actually able to build the things that you're researching and you can actually see has a benefit, were there any moments when you designed something or tried something based on all of the research that you'd done? It was a, a real moment that proved all of the work was worth it? Yes, when you get the feedback and one of them was Jimbalanga, where we split the roof to get the connection to the sky. And initially, the user feedback and even the clinician feedback was, oh, why do you split a roof? Because that result in a gap when there's driving rain, you get a bit of wet floor paving near the transitional areas, not any split roof when you have a driving rain you get the floor gets wet so they go oh why do you split the roof and then until one day one of the residents who was had a back injury and was bit bound for a period of time and i came back to collect the data she said oh i finally get what you're trying to do it's really amazing because she was a bit bound man that her views were quite limited and she actually got a view of the daily weather change and from the sky point of view so that really makes a difference in our work as an architect because we push a lot of design ideas and outcome and sometimes a very tough journey because you've got different clients and stakeholders and then finally the users so to get that feedback was Really, really um, fantastic. Yeah, well, that must be a really fulfilling... I mean, it's fulfilling when the roof comes on and everything gets constructed. <laughs> but this is when actually someone really used the space and really understand what you're trying to do. And it actually makes a difference that uh, you feel that you really achieved something. And that's, that's the point of ongoing and pursuing the design and research itself. Then. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a really important part of design because... I guess more often than not, we're designing for people who are able-bodied, who have full mobility of their bodies, and then for people who might be bed-bound for weeks. You know, it's it's a really important thing that they can still feel connection to the space around them and to people. So I can understand that it must be very fulfilling when you get that uh, feedback. Mm. And now that you've done this, I mean, it's I guess you've kind of answered the question there, but I mean, how is this? How has the experience influenced the way that you work now? Um. With the First Nation people, I usually run a community consultation now instead of just following a brief because a lot of time, this particular client group, the key issue is not captured in the design brief and there's a gap in that brief to the deliverables, like what is really important to these people in this site, in this context. And what needs to be addressed is usually not captured in a, I would say, typical government brief or in a standard aged care brief. Because uh, the issues that First Nation people try to address, like end-of-life care, connection to country, all of this can only be done through an in-depth understanding of community consultation. Without that level, you're only hitting a very brief target. What you're hitting is, oh yeah, I meet your bedroom requirements, I meet the Australian standard requirements, I try to apply best design principles in that but you're not meeting the cultural needs of the people. And there's no way of knowing the cultural needs of the people because there are over 200 indigenous groups in Australia and all of their culture varies slightly differently or their needs varies. And you can't assume that what was researched in Southeast Queensland applies in New South Wales or in Victoria. And therefore, the best thing when working with a different cultural group that I've applied is um, community consultation. Uh, is needed before you actually even progress in thinking about design. And that's where architects usually jump they jump into design and then we end up redesigning mm. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's that one of those uh, things where it's so important to, to listen and not talk, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 especially with First Nation people. I think the best thing to do is for the other project when I started for Mopi, all I did was um, six round of community consultation and then we captured all the key design considerations and the process result in this less redesigning involved. It meant you would go forward each time 
as you tick off those boxes. So, and it actually gets the confidence of the community that you're listening to them and uh, reflecting on their feedback, which is good. Yeah. All right, Y.E., well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast um, and we'll be really interested to see some more of the work that Conrad Gargett's doing uh, in aged care. It sounds like it's really wonderful stuff. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. Our next guest is James Thompson, who is the design director of MJA Studio with offices in Perth and Melbourne. MJA works across all building typologies, including left-of-field projects like Urban Surf, the first man-made surfing lagoon in Australia located in Essendon. Their diverse portfolio includes a wide variety of residential living project types, including luxury housing, social housing, student accommodation and aged care living projects. Working between the different residential typologies has shown MJA that their methods of counteracting social isolation and boredom are often similar, so all of their residential projects inform what they incorporate into their aged care designs. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? I'm very well. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So you've been extremely busy down over in Perth at MJA Studio. What do you think is the biggest consideration that you see popping up in aged care that seems to be overlooked? Uh, look, I think, unfortunately, the history of aged care in the last sort of 40 years is very institutional. And it sort of almost nannies the residents too much and takes away responsibility from them, which we believe has detrimental cognitive uh, effects on them. I think you've got to give them some level of responsibility while still providing excellent care and making sure that they're not hurt. But I think too often the floor plans and the spaces, you know, you've got very long corridors with lots of rooms coming off. They're not designed as as homes or houses. They're kind of, they're too much like a hospital, essentially. And, you know, if you think about where you want to end up yourself, I don't think I want to spend the last you know, four years of my life in a space that feels too much like a hospital. So, and what often happened as well, I think over the last 40 years, is that they were very inwardly focused. It was all about trying to contain residents and almost shut off from the outside. And I think it's really important to actually get them to be much more integrated with the community and actually co-locate them with things like childcare and student housing and research facilities and cafes, you know, things that are actually really active. You know, I think throughout human history, we've always done better when we've lived in villages with everything all together, you know, and I think unfortunately planning over the that last sort of well, the post-war period has tried to segment and separate everything away from one another. And we should really be getting the sort of mixity of use back together again. So you must work with some pretty big organisations who build and develop aged care facilities. When you're working with these companies, do they already have design guidelines in place or have you been working with some allied professionals to develop up some new design guidelines that allow you to have that freedom? Yeah, so some companies have more established design guidelines. Often companies will just have essentially the set of plans from their most recently completed project and they'll give that to the next architect or designer and say, this is what we did last time, this is the design guidelines uh, and hopefully with some lessons learnt uh, within it of what went wrong or what went right. But a couple of years ago we were approached by an aged care provider, a national group, and at the time, we weren't doing a lot in the aged care space. We were working across a, really a mixed bag of, of different project types, but we were doing some work in retirement living for them, and they really liked the way we approached it. We approached it sort of quite differently, I guess, in terms of starting from first principles, trying to understand site context, who the residents were going to be, and really understand what their needs and sort of aspirations were. And so... They came to us and said, look, we really want to actually, instead of just taking the last set of plans as constructed and giving it as a briefing document to the, the next architect, we want to basically start from scratch. So we were working with a guy called Paul Bolsch from Regis and you know he, he, was, he was really driving this. Um, he was super passionate about it. He's based in Melbourne. And he really wanted to you know wrap up all the lessons learned from a variety of projects, whether they be 
uh, renovations of existing facilities or new builds or projects. It's essentially alterations and additions to, to heritage structures. And he said, you know, we really want to actually start again and conscious of probably, you know, what was going to be happening uh, with the Royal Commission and what was coming out of the findings of that. You know, this was a really a good way to prove that the organisation really cared and really wanted to do things better. So that was kind of the brief to us. And not having done HKF for quite some time, we thought, well, the best way to to tackle this is to really do a, a bit of a national tour. They've got facilities all across Australia. And so we went through Adelaide, uh, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane and looked at a number of different facilities. And really for us, it was trying to understand from the top, you know, who that organisation is. You know, if you think about it like a company, like what are they selling? And they're selling care and they're selling care to often the sons and daughters of future residents um, and trying to deal with the guilt factor, I guess, of those guys who are like, oh, mum and dad, you know, we really want to look after them at home, but we can't. Um, We're going to have to put them in somewhere where there's care. So you've got to demonstrate a really great level of care. And to, to be able to give that care, you need really excellent staff. And so you need happy, healthy staff who have got good working conditions as well. And then you've got the layer of, of residents themselves and all their sort of requirements of living, which is you know similar to all of us should have the same sort of level of or quality of, of living as best as possible in terms of light and ventilation. Yeah. So you mentioned before that older aged care facilities were quite inward looking. When you started to break down the problems when people from Regis wanted to you know, start from the beginning, what were some of the first things you took away that were inhabiting this quality of life that people could get? I mean, I guess a lot of them, it comes down to aspect and view and the way they also integrate with the street. Um, so what we did, we actually broke down a facility into 180 different rooms essentially and then created – it was almost a mind map for us to understand how a facility works and how the interactions within everyone from staff and maintenance workers to guests and residents, how they interact. And so we created a linear narrative which went from almost out on the street and your arrival point, how do you find the building? How do you park or how does a bus drop you off? Is there a place to sit you know, and wait for someone? Making sure that you know, a bus or an ambulance can get in and not take out a canopy and that it's kind of clear and logical sequence of events to get through the front door and then how are you greeted and just working through the entire experience of every room in the building and then really thinking about the residents' experience when really, you know, you've got people who they are spending a lot of, well, pretty much their entire day in these spaces so making sure that when they wake up, the quality of light, ventilation and aspect from their bedroom is, is great, that they've got control over whether they want to wake up with the sunrise or if they want to, you know, be completely blacked out and have it, you know, and sleep in, but actually allow a level of control over their environment. And especially around the social spaces, making sure that there was choice around interaction. If they wanted to gather with people, they could, or if they wanted to find, you know, quiet space, they could as well. So, and I think that's something that we try and do with all of our projects is provide residents choice, you know, choice around no matter what time of day or no matter what time of year, there is a really great space for them to inhabit, uh, whether it's indoor or outdoor. And I think creating opportunities, like you don't always need really big spaces. You need a, a variety of different scaled spaces in different areas of a building because that's, that's sort of like how you treat your home. You know your favourite spot to have a cup of coffee in the morning. You know your favourite spot to have a beer in the afternoon. That's what you want to create so people feel at home. They can take ownership over over space. You mentioned that there's a really important social aspect too. How have you improved the staging for when people who don't live there want to come in and interact with their parents and family? Yeah, I think an important part of that is getting away from just having a banal kind of reception front desk and a security line and all that sort of thing. So we've been working on a project with Brightwater Care Group. They're an amazing not-for-profit company led by a CEO, Jennifer Lawrence, who is really an amazing leader in the field over here. 
And you know, they work with not only in residential aged care, but also brain injury rehabilitation and transitional care. And so we've been working on a master plan for them, which eventually when it's built out will be a, a mixed-use precinct for, for over 700 people. But the first stage really is an integrated research centre and workplace for them with an aged care facility. And in answer to your question, it's really about within the master plan, creating the idea of it's almost like a high street. So you actually get shops and communal uses fronting onto that street, which are two-sided. And then when you enter, you essentially enter like a cafe and gallery space, one that's really well linked in with nature and the parkland beyond, but it just feels like a really comfortable space. So that whether it's the family of residents or people in the neighbourhoods, can actually arrive and they, they feel comfortable when they're in there. Because if you, you know, when you walk into a, a room where you're presented with a reception desk and a level of a security line, you, you're not feeling comfortable. You're sort of wondering, am I in the right place? Um, should I be doing something else? But when you come into a space which you, you're you accustomed to, you know what a cafe is like, you know what a gallery space is like, you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is cool. This is not what I expected. And it sort of breaks a bit of that institutional feeling around how aged care is kind of perceived by the community. Yeah. What you're describing, it sort of feels like the places where people would love to go when they might feel a bit isolated, you know, at home, that they want to go to the shopping centre, they want to go to a cafe. And by prioritising those spaces and building on top of those things, then it does feel more communal and social. Absolutely, because, you know, the success of any development like this is whether or not grandkids actually want to go visit grandma or grandpa. Because, you know, that's often the hardest thing that, you know, kids get bored or they just, they're scared by a space. They don't want to hang out. But if you can create something where kids and their children are really happy and want to spend, you know, not just a quick visit, but actually spend hours and hours uh, within that facility and they enjoy it, then that's a huge win. That's like allowing for that sort of sense of community through comfort of enjoyment and shared spaces is really important to us. Yeah, absolutely. That, that must be the, the thing that really proves that it's all been worth it all along when, uh, when you can see that people are really happy to go over and visit their family and it doesn't feel like an imposition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've already hinted at the, uh, the project that you have going on in Victoria at the moment. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Regis Anala and what you've been trying to do with that project? Yeah, so out at Anala, there's an, an existing facility which is sort of quite outdated. I guess it's reached uh, its end of design life. And so we've really been looking to, to master plan the site and there's a couple of different practices doing work out there. But we looked at, again, just being able to create that central hub with a, with a new facility, the first stage, which creates a whole series of communal use on site. So there's some retirement living there. And we really wanted to bring also some of the generosity of what we try and do in WA with our projects to Victoria as well. So that essentially the outdoor spaces of these retirement living projects, the balcony spaces are really generous. And, you know, you've got that opportunity to actually spend a lot of time outside. And obviously Melbourne has quite different weather to, to Perth, but these are, are spaces which have got good control over their, their outside living areas a lot of protection, but also just a lot of space and a lot of glazing that opens up onto it. We were really keen to work with the different architects on site just to make sure that we can get it to be a really integrated development between all the different uses from retirement to aged care, but also have a differentiation between smaller detached housing to medium density retirement living as well. And so we worked on um, four stages out there. We hope that we can get started on it sometime soon. We've gone through documentation and it's a really great opportunity out there to also link in with what's happening in the neighbourhood and create a, a precinct which is really heavily vegetated, where it's really pedestrian friendly and where there's a, a central hub where all the different residents from all the different buildings can come and congregate. You know, and it's it's a bit of a resort vibe as well. You know, it's something which you, you wouldn't typically associate, I guess, with with retirement or aged care. But you know, I think you can be generous with these spaces and actually create something which, again, you know, grandkids go, "Wow, cool! I want to come and visit grandma because I can go for a swim in a pool, or there's outdoor movies going on, or there's yoga classes, all sorts." You know, and I think just programming fun into these living environments is something which we should always be looking to do as designers and, and architects. 
Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, you mentioned that it's a little bit out there. When a facility is quite far away from the township or, or a city, what needs to be put in place so that the people who are living in the facilities don't feel like they're, you know, disconnected from the wider community? Yeah, it's, it's a balancing act because where possible you want to integrate with the neighbourhood, but when there's, you know, a lot of Australian suburbs are kind of disconnected by nature. They were sort of, that's the way, unfortunately, they were designed. So with some of these larger master plan projects, we've got a great opportunity to actually create a village and a high street within uh, the development itself. So then instead of being inwardly focused, they're actually outwardly focused and you actually invite the community to come onto your site and to use these different commercial functions. And so that's what I think is a really good opportunity and something that we certainly you know pushed in Inglewood with the village. And I think both the projects in Regis at Hollywood in WA and at Nala we do see great opportunities to enable people walking the dog uh, from the local community to, to cut through and to walk through the gardens and to use some of the facilities. And I think we should encourage that. I think it's something that we do with a lot of our multi-residential and mixed-use projects is look to how we can actually, rather than keep out the public, is invite the public onto our site. Because so I think that's really important in terms of increasing safety and creating better integrated neighbourhoods rather than privatising space, like democratise space as much as possible. Mm, well, I guess that's a, that's a really, really good point in that the design process that you've been through can also be integrated into just our regular townships to be more accessible and, and easier to navigate. Has that sort of shifted the way that you've now been seeing some of your master planning work and projects that happen down in, in downtown areas? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we often talk about community benefit. And we've been working on a project in Perth with with Woha out of Singapore. And Richard Hassel, who was originally from Perth, is, is very passionate about actually sort of rating your your own buildings. So Woha came up with five different criteria essentially and they kind of rate how much green plot ratio is within the site, you know, how generous it is to the community and it sort of essentially rates your building as is it building a good bloke or is it a dickhead? And, <laughs> and it's a really interesting thing to then self-assess your own projects and see how, how generous your projects are. So in WA... Especially, you know, if you're asking for planning discretion on height or plot ratio, you really have to demonstrate design excellence and sustainability outcomes. And another thing that we've been pushing, though, is actually talking about community benefit. And so with a lot of our projects, more and more, we want to invite the public onto the site, but we also want to provide facilities within those buildings that don't exist in the neighbourhood. And I think that's a really great opportunity for interaction and also as a way for new buildings to actually get enjoyed and appreciated by the local community. You know, there's often a lot of angst around new building of all across Australia. Density is coming essentially, you know, Australia is very low rise, low density um, nation, but increasingly and especially more advanced in, in Melbourne and Sydney than in Perth. But there's always going to be friction between established neighbourhoods and, and their residents and new projects. So this idea of community benefit and integrating and allowing that sort of democratisation of, of private space is, I think, a really great opportunity for getting people to understand the benefits of architecture and development. All right, Jim. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been really fantastic hearing about the, the amazing work that you're doing to really benefit all of the aged care work that you're working on at the moment. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast and we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Well, thanks for having us, uh, Daniel, and look forward to once our borders open again to come and visit the Fitzroy studio and, and hopefully do some more projects uh, in Melbourne. So Thank you very much for having us and have a great day. As aged care facilities make their shift away from the institutional field they had in the past, more architects are designing with community engagement in mind. Another firm leading in this area is Clark Hopkins Clark, better known as CHC Architects. One of the aged care leaders at CHC is our next guest, Anna Nolasco, who originally trained and worked in Mexico City before making the move to Australia. Anna joins us now to share what CHC calls vibrant communities and also how coronavirus is affecting the considerations in aged care design. 
All right. Hello there, Anna. Thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really great to be connecting with you. Now that you've got so much experience, you know, working in Mexico and now working in Australia, what do you think the the CHC flavor for seniors living is? What direction do they take in the projects that you take on? Well, I really love the way we handle projects because we are really conscious about the design. Of course, it's always a balance in between different forces in order to achieve a project. In our end, it's about designing good spaces, creating good interactions. I don't know if you have heard about this term. It's called vibrant communities. Oh, no, that's that's new for me. Okay, well, that's a good term made by Dean, one of the partners at Clark Hopkins Clark. And the idea is to create, as the name says, vibrant, like activity and within the community. So we actually like to translate this philosophy into each of our projects. And also we try to leave it as much as possible in our company. Um, and I feel that that's something I haven't heard in any other place because, of course, it's like humankind. We tend to gather together to work together. But I think that at some point and through the modern times, in some places, it was more like in the modern times, we have kind of create more competition, more like individual work. And we want to go back and say, hold on, we don't need to be that individualist. We really need to create this collaborative environment. And it happens in offices, in all the homes, but also in particular with this seniors living and care sector, considering that the elders are most of the time within the same space, we want to pursue this sense of community, not only inside the building, but also some interactions with the external neighbourhood. Right, wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about Estia Health in Maroochydore. In this project, did you guys get to implement the vibrancy living model that you're working with at CHC? Yes, I think we have done it in different ways. Uh, First of all, internally, we have an operational model considering the small scale, like the human scale of the residents. It means that we have very clear what are the activities for the staff members and what are the activities for the resident members. We really want to create this easy access and easy to navigate space for both of the residents that are in that place. So considering this differentiation of spaces, we have to link in a way that it's easy for the residents to operate, but also without like losing the sense of the housing, the the home living space for the residents. Right. So I guess what that means is that people who work there as well as the people who live there, it feels really natural, it feels really comfortable, and it feels less like a standard retirement village. Yeah, correct. Definitely. We want to create this homely space. We have great lounges, the use of colours, all the design we have, it's always considering how it looks and how you feel while you are staying in there. Also taking in consideration a lot of other people that it's behind the scenes sometimes, like all the providers, all the people that it's coming to the, doing the laundries, all the services people, the kitchens. So we have, sometimes it's just so complicated to see all the people that it's involved in these facilities, but we don't want to make it so obvious for the residents and for the people that goes there and visit their family members. How do you minimise the visibility of all of the workers who are doing these things to support the people who live in a facility like this? Well, there are very clear standards, especially in terms of the spacing. We have to comply with all these requirements to make an easy way to navigate the space. And then these nursing spaces or health spaces are pretty much with good quality of materials, 
even some hand basing units that are along the corridor. We don't want them to look like as a hospital. We just give it like a very warm environment. And we still have all this provision of spaces that are required, but we want to make it look. I think it's all about the look as well. You mentioned that you have changed things operationally to make them more comfortable for the people who live there. What else have you done in terms of the look to achieve this thing that feels really vibrant and vital? Well, it's very important to consider this connection with the external spaces. As I said, in Estia, we have a tropical environment, so we have created a lot of courtyards to have these usable outdoor spaces that are integrated with the normal environment architecture. We also have created the freedom of choice for the people to move around. And we have incorporated some cafe areas that are also connected to the pedestrian paths of the outdoors. So it creates this connection of linking the age people with new people in the community. So we kind of create all these vibrant community again, where we are all interacting in the same hood. We also, in other projects such as the base, we have creating some great viewing rooms with also very particular locations seen to the outside. So the residents are able to look and see what's going on. In front, we have a primary school. So people, it's always interacting and seeing the kids going to school or when they have social activities outside. So I think that really creates this notion of you are part of that community. You have the look of it and they can look at you. So you you are visible. It's not that you are somewhere else where no one else can see you, but your family whenever they have time to visit. It's more like creating this sense and link of we are all together and we are living in the same hood. Yeah, it sounds like it's extremely different to the style of aged care buildings that were being built in the 80s and 90s and earlier as well. What do you think was the bad stuff that was happening in the old aged care facilities that were being built? I think that before it was people weren't listening that much to the elders' needs. It was more about, well, we need to comply with health requirements and then let's just make these places a bit more isolated, a bit more as hospitals. So I I don't think they were really considering, they weren't considering the people and that they are still active and they still want to be celebrating and doing things and being part of the or contribute to the society. Mm, Because it seemed like back in the 80s and 90s and earlier, the aged care facilities were a little bit like a one-size-fits-all where it didn't matter what level of care you had, you were going to be in in a building that was probably designed for the people who need an extremely high level of care. Definitely. So in the buildings that CHC is designing, how do you deal with all of the different varieties of care that people need in their living arrangements? In most of the cases, the facilities have like differentiation within the aisles or in sometimes uh, depending on the floor they still have some time to make, especially for people with dementia, they need different care. Sometimes if it's not a huge difference, they can still be integrated with the rest of the people. But in very particular cases, they do have people that need special care. So they have a different kind of uh, facilities. But in general, to be very inclusive with everyone, including the dementia people, we have sensory gardens, we have very mindful selection of materials, considering the the normal deterioration of the senses of some people, but we, we want to make it easy and safe for everyone. So we have provided, yeah, I think it's something as simple as selecting the correct color or patterns within the walls. Also, we have created some memory boxes in the at the entries. So they feel this sense of, I know where I'm around. I'm not getting lost. 
I feel comfortable, I feel secure, and I feel like this is my home because I also have belongings. I have something that identifies me and my room and my place. Right. So tell us a little bit more about these memory boxes. What are, what are they? Well, these are pretty much at the entry of the rooms because sometimes we have, of course, main corridors. Also, we, we try to have these corridors through the rooms, considering some open glazing to, to have lighting and to also see through the courtyards. And then on the other side, if we have these uh, doors to the rooms, they need sometimes visual items to to feel that sense of belonging. Some people, especially with dementia, can get lost in the space. So when you have these memory boxes, you can put something that resembles your life, could be photos, could be trophies, could be books, or could be, I mean, if, if someone has created something in wood or anything that is valuable for the residents, is a way to show up in their what identifies them, what's important of them. Sometimes people have made books, so they have the book that they have wrote in their life. And that's like, yeah, it's a great way to um, demonstrate and talk a bit about yourself. And then that also creates this interaction and people ask, hey, tell me about your book. So it's a, another way to also engage with the rest of the residents. Mm, beautiful. And it seems like so much of the work that CHC is doing is about integrating older people, the people who need more intensive care into the community. Is CHC integrating other facilities to bring families or younger people into the buildings as well? Yes, we have collaborated with some of our partners. There is this project called Andrew Kerr. We, we were just finishing and we were doing the master plan, including a childcare facility. So at the moment, and considering the new situation, it's kind of on hold, but it's, it's also, well, this is like a um, complicated situation here as well, because it wasn't only from our end, but in general, I can say that we've been working along with other clients and other companies that are exploring these childcare facilities integrated with the aged care facilities. And the idea would be to have this connection where elders can go and tell stories. The childs can also go and have this connection, asking questions. I think it's a good way to, again, integrate the different people with different needs and a very huge and important age gap. So I think it's a very interesting project that would be really nice at the end. Absolutely. And it's just unfortunate that coronavirus is having such a intense effect on, on aged care facilities. What, how has this started to affect the conversation in your project team at work as you're designing aged care facilities now? Are they starting to adapt to a coronavirus world? For sure. I think it's a topic that we all have to talk about in many ways. Uh, as much as it's important for aged care facilities, uh, not only from the architectural point of view, but it's such a wide conversation because we also have to consider the way these facilities operate also, not only in these facilities, but it's a lot about the culture, like the hygiene, the way people eat, the way we exercise, I mean, it's a pretty huge topic. It's a pandemic and we are, we cannot really speculate much. We are kind of learning through the way or through the go. And we really want to consider, of course, the architectural side, but also the other health issues and the health habits we need to improve. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that took us for surprise, but definitely I think it's good as, as well as we have done it before, having these open spaces. It's important for ventilation, using passive systems, also considering comfortable individual spaces for everyone. And we also have to work along and be very careful on the way the people is behaving within the space. I mean, the, the, the way it operates also, it's very important. 
Well, I guess that's one of the issues, isn't it, is whether um, we close the doors to aged care living facilities or we think about how the facilities can adapt so that people can still have in-person meetings and because there's so much that Zoom can do, there's so much that speaking on online can do, but everyone really wants to have that in-person contact. So it's going to be interesting to see how aged care facilities adapt and change now that we know that this is a, an actual real health threat that especially people in aged care facilities are extremely vulnerable to. Yes, I think I think it's very important, yeah, this human connection, but also it's interesting because for us nowadays, it's so easy to take the technology and have this connection. And even though it's not exactly the same, I can say that it makes a difference. The problem as well is that some people don't have this access of technology in their aged care facilities, and that's a reality as well. Or people don't know how to interact with this technology. I've heard that one of my colleagues, she has her mom at an aged care facility and she wasn't able to communicate, not because we don't have enough technology, but it was only one single phone for, I don't know, 15 residents. And the way that you are having the same phone for everyone, it's also like another way of getting contagious, right? So I think, of course, there is a lot to improve even having more technology within these facilities, which actually can help if you can see in a big screen, but interact at the same time with your family members would be easier than just like having to queue and having to wait until the nurse is available for you to go and talk to your family members. Yeah, because that's that's one of the hard things, isn't it? It's You have to wait and allow some time and be patient. Even if there was, you know, some sort of airlock system, it's going to be an interesting change because if people, as you say, don't have the technology and, you know, sharing facilities is another way to spread the disease, there's going to have to be some changes, I guess, in the actual buildings so that people can still somehow have connection with their family. Yes, I I completely agree. I think it's it's a hard work from all the ends because, again, even even if these social interactions within the facility, they have to be very careful about the, following the protocol, having the masks. I mean, it's not ideal. Or even like the, the new shells that they have in front, they are white. You can't even see the expression of the other person. But also I, I've heard that even the staff members sometimes went to work having symptoms. And it's not that it happened spontaneously there. It's like some someone from the outside came and brought the virus. So it's a very sensible topic. We, we always have to learn about the mistakes. And I think me as an architect, I would be like very mindful and try to be upfront to try to think on solutions but also we need the community members to be healthy to don't go to work if they feel unwell to clean their hands as much as possible and we all have a little piece of the puzzle and we all have to make it work in a way to avoid future issues yeah, well, it sounds like that's that's definitely one of the issues is people who are staff members there have to go home at the end of the day to see their family and just, just to sleep. And when an outbreak like this happens, if future standards get implemented where there needs to be living arrangements for staff so that they don't have to leave the building and they do much longer periods inside the aged care facilities, you know, two weeks on, one week off, that kind of thing, yeah, that must that must change the brief of these aged care facilities massively. So it's going to be interesting to see the, the client reaction to what happens and also the government regulations. Yes, I think we are still learning and would be interesting to see what would be the outcome at some point. But it's good to start having these conversations, isn't it? I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It was really wonderful to hear all of your experience, Anna. And uh, yes, we can't wait to see some more of the work that CHC does. The Estia Health Project in Maroochydore and the Bay's Aged Care Facility look 
really great, very top-notch aged care facilities in Australia. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast today and we hope to hear more from you in the future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been episode 12 of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Y.A. Ng, James Thompson and Anna Nolasco for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gordon, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie, and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins, and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.